Well, a number of years ago now, uh, Lorena and I had the opportunity to attend a marriage conference for pastors and wives in Tampa, Florida. Now, the event was scheduled for late February, as I remember, and so we saw it as a kind of a mini spring break, a chance to get away from the cold of the Midwest and away from the responsibilities of parenting four young boys at the time and away from responsibilities of ministry and just spend a couple days together in the Florida sun. Uh, but no sooner did we get buckled into our flight than a woman took the aisle seat right next to me. So, my, so Lorena was by the window, I was in the middle, and a woman sat down in the seat right next to me. Now, I don't know about you, but when I travel, especially when I fly, I'm not, I'm not really looking to get into conversations with complete strangers. Just the way I'm kind of wired. So uh, I immediately got out... Um, some sermon notes I was working on, dropped down the tray table, and sort of set up this uh, invisible psychic force field that said, you know, do not disturb. But it took about 15 seconds for this lady, whose name turned out to be Betty, to invade my little cocoon of privacy. She piped up and said, so, you on vacation? And I resisted the urge to say, until now. Um, <laughs> Instead, I responded with a kind of reserved politeness and said, well, sort of, we're going to a, a conference. And then I turned right back to my sermon notes. Betty didn't even pause for breath. She said, oh, a conference. What kind of conference? And my wife, who knows me well, stepped in to rescue me. She leaned over and said, we're going to a marriage conference. And Betty said, oh, a marriage conference. That's nice. My husband and I have been married 17 years. That's a long time. 17 years, you know what I mean? It hasn't been easy either. We've had our ups and downs. We've had some tough times, I tell you, 17 years. Now, I'm not proud of this, but I started thinking at the moment, this is just great. All I want is a little peace and quiet. I'm sitting next to a pathological talker with marriage problems. <laughs> then Lorreen leaned over and asked, are you on vacation? And I'm like, don't encourage it. <laughs> and Betty said, I'm going to sp spend a week with my mother. We're having our dog put to sleep, and it's just so sad I had to go away. We've had him for 16 years. You want to see a picture? He's my baby. And now I'm wishing I listened a little closer to that, you know, little talk to give about the exits on an airplane. Uh, she got out her wallet and showed us a picture of her dog. I'm not making this up. And then she told us her dog was so special because she hadn't been able to have children. That her only pregnancy ended in a miscarriage. And as she said that, her voice trembled and her eyes filled with tears. And just about that time, God spoke. He kind of whispered. He whispered to me something like, psst, hey, knucklehead, here's a woman filled with sadness, desperately trying to talk to someone. And I've arranged to have her a seat next to an ordained pastor and his wife, who both have advanced degrees in counseling. Do you think you could get with the program? <laughs> so I put away my notes and started to listen. We'll come back to Betty in just a minute. Today, of course, is Easter, Resurrection Sunday. For the last two weeks, we've heard our friend John Dixon uh, pr present to us a little mini-series called The Road to Resurrection. And John, if, if you had a chance to hear those messages, if not, go back and listen. But he encouraged us to look at the claim of resurrection through the lens of history, through the lens of evidence. And the evidence of history points to two facts that even the most skeptical scholars accept. One is the tomb was empty. The second is, from the very beginning, people, many people, hundreds of people, claimed to see the risen Jesus themselves. And then last week, uh, Dr. Dixon took us through the story of Thomas, 
who insisted he would not believe unless he could see with his eyes and touch with his hands the risen Christ. Uh, and then Jesus shows himself to Thomas and allows him to see and to touch. And Thomas responds with belief. He says, my Lord and my God. Jesus then says, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Jesus is saying, while a few people, a precious few people in history, would have the incredible blessing of seeing the risen Christ face to face in person, most of us would come to faith based on the testimony, the good testimony of others. And today we're going to see what all of it means for people like Betty, for people like us here today in this room. We're going to look at the story of the resurrection uh, as John the Apostle tells it in his gospel. I'm going to read through this passage and kind of stop verse by verse to explain some things. And we all, we all basically know the story, but I'm going to point out a few things, and then we're going to get to the very heart of the story, and we'll go from there. So let's, I'm going to open up Scripture to John chapter 20. We'll put the verses on the screen, or you can follow along in your Bible. John 20, I'm going to read 10 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, that would have been Sunday, by the way, the day after the Sabbath day would have been a work week in Jewish culture. And this, by the way, is why most Christians for 2,000 years have gathered for worship on Sunday because that's the resurrection day of Christ. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, a couple things here. This would have been sometime before 6 a.m. in the Jewish way of talking about time when it was still dark. Uh, I imagine Mary was having trouble sleeping. After all, she had experienced that weekend, and plus she and some other women were preparing to go and finish preparing Jesus' body properly for burial that they were not able to finish on Friday evening because the Sabbath began. And by the way, uh, we also know from other gospel accounts that other women were with Mary Magdalene that morning, or at least joined her there. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. But John here focuses his story on one character, Mary Magdalene, and there are reasons for that. We don't know a whole lot about Mary Magdalene, uh, but we do know a few things. We know she's from a village called Magdala, thus Mary Magdalene, Mary from Magdala. Uh, that was a small village on the Sea of Galilee. We know that Jesus at one time delivered her from seven demons. Uh, so we can assume that at one time, before meeting Jesus, this was a very, very troubled woman. Seven demons. She's also named as one of the women who eventually supported financially Jesus and the Twelve over the years of their ministry. Verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. I'm going to pause there. This is how John, the writer, refers to himself, the one Jesus loved. Now, he's not being arrogant here. He's not saying that Jesus loved him more than the others. It's actually a way of him being modest. He doesn't want to mention his name in his gospel. So this is the way he refers to himself. He's just simply saying, uh, talking, acknowledging the great love of Jesus that transformed his own life. So the one Jesus loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. Now this is the most natural response. She's not thinking or expecting resurrection. She's expecting to find a body to anoint for burial. What she's afraid of, I think, is that someone had taken the body out and then taken it to the dump heap behind the, 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 the crucifixion site, which is what usually happened to crucified bodies. They weren't given burials. 
Crucifixion was designed to eliminate their memory from history at all, to take away their identity, to leave them naked and broken and dead in a pile of bodies left for dogs to eat. That's what she was afraid of. Okay? So Peter and the other disciple started to the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. A couple of things here. How far did Peter and John have to run to get to the tomb? Um, I did a little research, and I've been to the Holy Land, and some of you have been there as well. It's not a big place. But the distance from the upper room, where it was believed they were still in hiding, to the tomb was about a kilometer, just over half a mile. It struck me roughly the distance between here and our Kesslinger campus. So not a huge distance, but far enough that if you're not really in shape, it's hard to run it all at one time. Um, so they're running. And here's a famous painting by a Swiss uh, artist uh, named um, Eugene Bernand. He painted this in 1898. And if you look closely, you can kind of see the urgency, the concern, the confusion in the face of Peter and John. Now notice here as well, John is humble enough not to mention his own name in the Gospels, but not humble enough not to mention that he outran Peter to the tomb. <laughs> some traditions say that John would have been about 10 years younger than Peter. We don't know for sure, but that would explain some of this part of the story. So then he, John, verse 5, bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Now, this is the first of three Greek words that John uses for to see something, all right? Uh, this one means simply to look at or notice. So it says, John looked, uh, bent over and looked, just looked and saw some stuff in the tomb. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came along behind him, because he's trailing behind, and went straight into the tomb. So John stops at the entrance, peers in, Peter just barges right in. And it says, he saw, and this is a second word, it means more than to see something, it means to see and consider something, to examine, to look harder at something. He sees the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Now, I want you to see a lot of detail here, because this is, tells us something about how the ancient Jewish people buried their dead. They would first wrap the body um, in strips of, of cloth, almost like a mummy, but not quite, and then they would put a separate napkin or head cloth over the face and head. Now, so this description here in the New Testament just reeks of authenticity. This is how the ancient Jews did it. But what Peter sees, what gets his attention here, is that something strange has taken place. Uh, the, the grave wrappings are still there. Um, they haven't been cut or torn off, so vandals haven't been in there. Uh, this is not the work of a grave robber. It's as if the body has just somehow evaporated. Because everything is in its place. Verse 8. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, he lets us know again, also went inside. He saw and believed. This is the third word, and it means to see, consider, and to understand. Notice, to understand not by seeing the resurrected Jesus yet, but simply by examining the evidence. Verse 9. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now, this is interesting to me. Uh, these two disciples, Peter and John, um, have seen the empty tomb. Uh, they have seen some evidence. We're told that John believes. We aren't told exactly what he believes, but he believes something happened. But at this point, they do nothing. Uh, John doesn't bear witness to anybody. He doesn't say anything about what he believes. 
They just go back into hiding. And so now, after all that, we get to the heart of the story, at least what I think is the heart of the story. Verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. There were angels now in the tomb. They weren't there when Peter and John looked in, just moments before. But now they are there, as if they've come specifically for Mary Magdalene. Also, this is a possible reference to the Old Testament picture of the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant was the holiest possession the Israelites had. It represented the very presence of Yahweh, uh, God. And on each side of a golden slab on top of the Ark were angels, golden angels with their wings uh, stretched upward. uh, And it was called the mercy seat. And the Hebrew word for mercy seat simply means, I will meet you there. Interesting to think about. Verse 13. They ask her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that that he had said these things to her. Today we're going to look at two questions and a statement. The first question is, why are you crying? Why are you crying? I've mentioned here before in recent weeks that our son and daughter-in-law and their two little girls have been living with us for the past four months or so, Uh, and we have loved having them with us in our home. And having a -a two-and-a-half-year-old and a a nine-month-old in your house uh, has reminded us of the days when we uh, had four uh, young boys under the age of eight uh, growing up under our roof. During those years, uh, of course, it wasn't unusual for us to wake up at night to the sound of uh, a very young child crying. And if you're a parent, you kind of know how that goes. If, if it's your first child and you hear crying in the night, you jump up in a panic, you run to see what's going on. If it's your third or fourth child, if it's a whimper, you kind of roll over and act like you didn't hear it. <laughs> if, the crowd's, if the cry is loud enough, it's a full-blown scream or a wail, and it was your turn <laughs> to get up. We kind of took turns. Uh, I'd get up and run in there and see what was going on. You'd take the boy in your arms and say, hey, what's wrong? What's wrong? Tell me where it hurts. Why are you crying? And through tears, they would say, I had a bad dream, or I have a tummy ache. And you'd do your best to comfort them. But the truth is that big people cry too. Only we don't cry as easily as children do, and we often don't cry on the outside. Rather, we we tend to weep on the inside where no one can see. Mary here is crying. The word used here means to weep aloud, to mourn, or to sob. The angels ask, woman, woman, why are you crying? And that, that seems like an obvious question to me. Mary's grieving because Jesus is dead. Mary was one of the women, one of the women at the foot of the cross as Jesus was crucified. And, he, and it's, a, it's a death so brutal and so violent, we can't even imagine what that was like. But she was there. 
Luke tells us that, that Jesus had cleansed Mary from seven demons, that she had followed him with great devotion ever since. So she's lost her healer. She's lost her rabbi. She's lost her great friend. Her faith has been shattered. She had been one of those who thought that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one of God, come as the promised king. She's lost hope. Jesus is gone, and her hope has died with him. She's fearful. I think fearful of the future. Fearful that, that maybe those demons will return. Who will protect her? She's many reasons to be weeping outside that tomb. And if I ask here this morning, why are you crying? Where does it hurt? What wounds or regrets do you carry secretly somewhere inside? What causes you to feel afraid today? What losses do you grieve? I think I get as many answers as there are people in the room. Because we're all grieving in some way. We're all looking for someone, something, someone to bring us comfort and hope. And then we see a second question in the story. The second question is, who is it you are looking for? Who is it you are looking for? We ended up talking to Betty on the airplane, or more accurately, she talked to us uh, almost the entire three-and-a-half-hour flight. She talked so much that at the end of the flight, my neck was like stuck like this, listening to her. And it became obvious we were dealing with a, a person who had experienced a great deal of pain in her life. Struggles on her marriage had produced loneliness. The loss of her pregnancy left unresolved grief and deep disappointment. She had looked to her pet dog of 16 years for companionship, and now even her dog was gone. At one point, she said she looked to her church. She went to a different denomination. Looked to her church for comfort and support, but became disillusioned when one of her loved ones was denied a funeral because he hadn't paid his membership dues. She gave up on the church. And all this pain she dragged through her life like we drag luggage through airports. Verse 14. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Notice Jesus asked the very same question. Why are you crying? Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, don't cry. To me, this suggests that Jesus understands when our hearts are broken. God is not angered by or impatient with our tears. He wants us to share with them that which causes our souls to weep. So Mary Magdalene turns from the tomb, grieving, confused, and fearful. And Jesus, who Mary does not yet recognize, asks, who is it you are looking for? John tells us she doesn't recognize him. How is that possible? Why? Well, some have argued or suggested that the resurrected body of Jesus somehow looked different than his pre-resurrection body, and that's possible. Some have suggested that she was kept from recognizing him by a kind of spiritual blindness, and that's also possible. But what I think, just me, what is most likely is simply that she wasn't expecting to see him alive. She may not have even looked up at the man she assumed was a gardener. She's so consumed with her grief and her fear and her confusion, and she's looking for a dead body, not a resurrected Lord. And this tells me, I want you to listen to this, 
This tells me that it's entirely possible to be in the presence of the risen Jesus and not recognize him. It's entirely possible, for example, to be right here in church on Easter Sunday morning and not recognize who Jesus is. It's possible that in some way that could describe you this morning. Now, at one level, she's looking for the body of Jesus who had been crucified in front of her eyes. But at another, another level, I think Jesus is asking what we are looking for to meet some of the deepest needs of human life. Who will fill our loneliness with love? Who will heal our regrets with forgiveness? Who will calm our fears with peace and hope? Who will give our lives eternal purpose and meaning? Who will provide an answer to the great question of death? That is the great question of our lives that we don't talk about very often death. And notice the question is not what, but who. These needs are not met by more money, by acquiring more things, by achieving more knowledge, by more activity or accomplishments, but rather only in a relationship by a person. So we've seen two questions. Why are you crying and who is it you are looking for? And now we see a statement. I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. I've told this story before, but when I was 12 years old or so, my family lived about 40 miles north of New York City. Uh, and that year, my mom took my brother and my younger brother, Joe, and me to, into the city for some Christmas shopping, kind of a special thing to see the lights and all that. So we went into New York City, went to a major downtown store. I think it was Macy's. Picked up a few things, and when it was our turn at the checkout line, um, the young man, like a college-age kid, maybe late high school, was at the register. By the time we got there, he was standing like he was in a trance. He was staring off into the distance, and he looked like he'd seen a ghost, and he was muttering to himself. He was saying, that was Joe Namath. I just saw Joe Namath. And we looked, and sure enough, walking away from the register was the football star, Joe Namath. My mom uh, grabbed our, our stuff and our bags, grabbed us by the hands, and we took off through the, uh, through the, gro through the not grocery store, but through the, this big department store, chasing Joe Namath. We, we chased him all the way to an elevator. He got in the elevator with a friend of his, and we jumped in with him. So it was just Joe Namath, a friend, my mom, and my brother and me in the elevator. And we were probably standing, like, looking right at him. <laughs> he was standing there. He was kind of singing to himself. It was so amazing. I still remember exactly what he was wearing. I was 12. He was wearing these purple, uh, my, he my head was down, he was wearing these purple velour bell-bottom pants, pointy-toed boots, he had a big fur coat on, and that famous mustache. He had this famous mustache. And my mom kept trying to get me to say something, but I was so overwhelmed and awestruck, I, I literally couldn't make my mouth work. I couldn't speak. Finally, my mom, great mom, she stepped, piped up and said, Mr. Namath, my boys would love to meet you. He smiled at us. And he said, hiya, boys. He was as nice as could be. Shook our hands, and then the door opened, and he left. And that was it. And all the way home, I was like in 12-year-old heaven, right? I met the great Joe Namath. But the truth is, looking back, Joe Namath didn't change my life. You know, he was famous. He won a Super Bowl. He gave me a great story. But Joe Namath didn't really care about me. He was nice. He didn't really care. He didn't really love, he didn't love me. He didn't even know my name. 
Verse 15. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she says, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers. Let me pause there. Remember, all these guys, all these men, had abandoned him. Uh, Peter had denied him. They're hiding in fear. Yet Jesus doesn't say, Go to those those knuckleheads. Go to those fair-weather friends of mine. Go to those cowards. He says, Go to my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father to my God and your God. Now, why would Jesus say, Do not hold on to me? Why would he say that? We can guess that when Jesus spoke her name and Mary recognized him, she reached out to hug him. I imagine her wanting to grab on, hold on like she was never going to let him go. It's just our human instinct. And Jesus, in effect, says, no, you don't have to hold on to me physically. I'm going to go away, but I'm going to be with you still forever. In verse 18, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things her. Now we have to see this. What John's actually telling us is that Mary Magdalene becomes the first witness to the resurrected Jesus. As one writer put it, she becomes the apostle to the apostles. Now in some ways, Mary was an utterly unlikely witness. Think about it. Mary's a woman. In that culture, the testimony of a woman was not regarded as reliable, wasn't even allowed in a court of law. Uh, she'd been a troubled woman, at one time having seven demons within her, yet she's the first person on the face of the earth to meet and see and hear from the risen Jesus. Like John Dixon pointed out moments, uh, a couple weeks ago, if you were making up this story, if you were just creating a, a story to start a new religion, you would never choose Mary Magdalene as the first witness. It would make no sense at all. But in other ways, she was kind of the perfect witness. Here's why. If Jesus forgave and then healed a woman who at one time had seven demons, if Jesus appeared to her, if Jesus spoke her name, what would keep him from speaking your name today? And if Jesus trusted this woman with her past to be his witness, to start the whole ball rolling down through the centuries, as Rachel Gilson said a few weeks ago, to bet her life on the resurrection, then Whatever your past or my past, Jesus can use you as his witness. Now I want you to notice something I haven't yet really pointed out. Maybe you saw it in the text. When did Mary Magdalene know that it was the risen Jesus? When did she know? It wasn't when she saw the facts of the empty tomb. It wasn't when she saw the evidence of the empty burial clothes. It wasn't when she heard the words of the angels, not even when she saw him. When was it? Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. One word. Mary. Jesus recognized, I mean, Mary recognized the risen Jesus when he spoke her name. When he spoke her name, her grief turned to joy, her fear dissolved into peace. Her despair became a fierce and unconquerable hope. When he spoke her name, her faith became personal. So, what does the fact of the resurrection mean? 
means that Jesus is who he said he was. The eternal God, creator of all things, in human flesh. As the cross points us to God's provision to the problem of sin, so Jesus' resurrection is God's answer to the great question of death because Jesus' resurrection guarantees the resurrected life of everyone who puts their faith in him. Before uh, that plane landed in Florida, we were able to to basically explain to Betty um, the difference between the traditions of religion and the power of a, of a personal relationship with Jesus. We learned that Betty lived near a church, a kind of a well-known church in her area. She says she drove by it every day, so we encouraged her that Easter was just a few weeks away. Maybe she could visit that church on Easter, and she might find the one she was looking for. And maybe she did visit that church that Easter. We didn't get her information, so I don't really know. We should have gotten her information, but we didn't. And if she did, I pray that she heard Jesus speak her name that day. And maybe she's celebrating the risen Jesus today. Wouldn't that be something? But I want you to hear most today that Jesus speaks your name today. There are facts I can point you to. There's evidence. There's cultural tradition. But this is more than that. Because this is personal. And faith at its heart is personal because Jesus is personal. He speaks your name. And I don't want to finish here this morning without giving you a chance to respond because you might be here this morning all dressed up on Easter as a secret skeptic. Faith is hard for you for some reason. You have questions. You have your doubts. You might be here just out of cultural tradition. It's just what you do on Easter. And then you go to brunch. You might be here just to keep a family member happy because they want you to be in church on Easter. You might be here like Mary Magdalene in that moment when you're in the presence of Jesus himself, but you don't yet know him. You don't recognize him. But he knows you, and he calls your name. The Apostle Paul gives us the simplest response of faith in Romans chapter 10. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So maybe today, Easter Sunday 2023, is the day you take that step, that, that great leap from seeing the facts, from considering the evidence, to believing. And by believing, John says, may you have life in his name because he is risen. Hallelujah, he is risen. Bow with me in prayer. Lord, today we thank you for the great good news that we can celebrate with your followers all over the world, people of every nation, tribe, tongue, and language who celebrate today that our sins are forgiven, that death is defeated, that our hope is secure, that our eternal destiny is promised because the tomb was and is empty because you are risen. And because you speak each one of our names this morning, and may we respond, even with all our questions, by believing. And in believing, may we have life in your name. Amen. Our benediction this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, chapter 13. And now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. 
And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.